1: Welcome back inside the clubhouse Chicago Sports Radio 6-7 the score. I'm David Hall with Bruce Divine. Thank you for joining us on this Saturday morning, the middle of January. We're still talking baseball as we do 52 Saturdays every week of the year. And in this time now, we have a special guest to we'll go out to our guest hotline on the circuit resort and casino in Las Vegas, home of the world's largest sports book. That's where we find the highly respected, highly skilled senior baseball writer for The Athletic, Jason Stark, the 2019 Spink Award winner. Good morning, Jason. Thank you for joining us this morning.
2: David, Bruce, how are you guys? What's the temperature in Chicago right now? What do you think? Well,
1: we are probably 20s, mid 20s. There's a little snow on, on the way. It's not uh, terrible, but it has been worse. But it could get better, Jason. It's it's a typical <laughs> January Saturday in Chicago. Uh, we're,
2: we're at 16 where I live, but this is a reminder, men, that we need to get this lockout settled. And you know why? Because pitchers and catchers has never been more important to us.
1: Absolutely. Pitchers and catchers report, not pitchers and catchers reject. And yet that's what happened the other day, the first bargaining session in 43 days, Jason. What is the right way, the proper context to put what happened on Thursday into perspective as we look ahead with a little bit of optimism that uh, I think feels like a little bit of pessimism?
2: Uh, well, David, I'm still scarred from covering these, this strike in 1994 <laughs> and 1995. Uh, I spent way too many days traveling around covering talks that went nowhere. But I did learn a lot from doing that. And one of the things that I learned was it's so tempting to do play by play like it's a game, right. or even like it's a tennis match, because you know the ball keeps bounding over the net one direction or the other, other direction. And it's just so tempting to look at a session that lasts an hour, players then express unhappiness, frustration, and you're thinking, boy, this is going nowhere. But my my thing is you should always take a step back. And if you take a step back, you realize, I, in my mind, looking at what the owners proposed this week and what they proposed in the past There's actually more in the way of general concepts that these two sides agree to at least be open to than there is that they have no path to a deal. And so in the big picture, I think there's a deal there to be made. I think the biggest worry that I have and a lot of people in baseball have is is there's so much dysfunction in their relationship that they just can't get there.
3: Jason Stark who uh, uh, I have been uh, bumping into in baseball uh, uh, press boxes and locker rooms for 40 years joining us on inside the clubhouse for the next uh, ten minutes, twelve minutes or so uh, whatever gracious amount of time he's allowed us and Jason uh, I- I'm just I'm glad you said that because there's you know, I also covered that that strike and spent way too much time in New York, uh, <laughs> bouncing between hotels and, you know, bad food and first. bad. Uh, it was. Uh, you're right. The scars are still there, and and I, I have the same feeling you have that, the the these are real offers and real ideas that the owners are offering here, but for some reason, with all of this stuff. Uh, I still think it's about the union trying to win back two horrible losses in labor disputes or labor, uh, CBAs that got done over the past two times and trying to make up for their losses in, in one labor negotiation. I wonder your, what your perspective is of that and, uh, you know the Tony Clark taking a, a you know pretty much a, a backseat for the first time for a long time to uh, to Meyer and to Boros as far as the lead for the players side.
2: Well, I, Bruce, I think there's a lot of truth in that. Um, you know, these last two labor deals, we know now the owners won big, and I think there's a lot of pressure on Tony and Bruce Meyer to to win to win this. And I think there's a lot out there that they can already sell as a win. Um, I, you know, I alluded to all these things that I think they agree on or at least are open to in common. Let me just run through them. Universal DH, right? We, I think we know now that's going to happen. They're both cool with that. Expanded playoffs, they don't agree on how many teams should make the playoffs, but they obviously agree on that. Both sides have made proposals that include a draft lottery as a way to uh, deal with tanking. I think we see that there's some there's some definite path to an agreement there. Uh, increasing the minimum payroll. Don't agree on the amount, but they agree that they – that's an area that I think you're going to certainly see in the deal. Um, eliminating draft pick penalties for free agents. Both agree on that. That was in the proposal that the owners made the other day. Um, changing the Super 2 system in some way. I Don't have any common – a ground on what that way is but just remember as long as there's some agreement on the concept there's a there's a way to go and then the, the last one that I see is the Chris Bryant service time mess I mean the owners keep making proposals designed to address that that the union keeps rejecting but again like they understand that something to that effect has to be in the deal and so, Anybody who's ever been involved in negotiations knows the way they're supposed to work. You make a proposal, I say, you know what, I I can't do that. My side will never do that, but what about this? And then you go back and forth till you find that sweet spot. That's where we need to get to. That's where we haven't come close to getting to so far. There has to be some momentum on that front where you're having actual meaningful dialogue.
1: Jason, when we talk about some of these broad concepts, I think there's a lot of attention that's always focused on the competitive balance tax, the luxury tax, if you will, and and where that should be and the penalties and all of those things that come up in conversations about that. But I don't always hear so much conversation or focus on the salary salary cap floor. We talk about the ceiling and, and we maybe overlook the floor a little bit, which I think is a growing problem in Major League Baseball. And I just wonder conceptually, how will that be addressed and is that something that is very divisive when it comes to both sides?
2: Yeah, that's one of the biggest areas where they don't agree. I think you're exactly right, David. Um, you know, The union forever has taken the position that it can't agree to a, a payroll floor if it won't agree to a cap because this is based on the belief in the free market system. All right, let's just accept that, even though it's kind of a dubious position to take. What have they agreed on for, like, 25 years? A tax at the top for teams that go over a certain amount. Isn't the obvious solution here a tax on the other end? The teams that go under a certain amount of payroll... Pick the number, 80 million, 90 million, 100 million, whatever you want to pick, whatever you can agree on. If you don't get there, you have a choice. Just like the Dodgers have chosen to pay more than the the threshold and pay the tax, you have a choice to go under. But if you do, there's a tax. And if you keep going under, then maybe you start losing draft picks like you do at the top, like you start losing international slot money like you do at the top. Why can't it work exactly the same way? Tell me that wouldn't work. It seems so simple to me.
3: Yeah, you know, Jason, you're right. i would just I would just propose that uh, if you put a floor in, you're gonna you're gonna increase tanking to that number for a lot of teams as well if you don't address the revenue sharing issue. Okay, because yeah, I don't think anything uh,
2: works. I, 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 Bruce, I agree. I, like, I think a lot of these pieces of the puzzle have to fit together, but that's one piece that seems obvious, seems logical, seems so easy mm-hmm. to do.
3: Right, I agree with that. Uh, I just think that players feel that they are opening themselves up. Players' representatives are feeling they're opening thems, themselves up to a, uh, a real cap down the line and, uh, and a fact that uh, owners for the first time, what would you say, both of you guys, over the last five, six years, have really adhered to not going over $210 million. Only a couple of clubs are doing it, teams that are the huge market teams like the Yankees and the Dodgers that have a chance in their mind to win a World Series doing it. But uh, you would really come very close to locking yourself into that dreaded, you know, salary cap that uh, the owners have wanted for so many years. You know, Bruce, I
2: agree with that. And yet um, in some ways, like if you, you know, if you want to remove all the history of baseball labor, and it'd be great if we could do that and just start over. um, I actually think a system with a, with a cap, a floor, and a sense of partnership would be so much better for the sport than what we have now. I understand why the union opposes it. I, I'm sure that Tony Clark and Bruce Meyer think that if they ever agreed to any form of a cap, the ghost of Marvin Miller would smite them with a lightning bolt. I, I understand <laughs> that. <laughs> okay, but here's, like, as, you, as you look at these two sides, what's missing? There's a sense of common purpose there's a, a sense uh, there's no sense of we're in this together there's no sense of partnership yeah. and it, when you when you have a cap system one thing that goes with that is the players get 50% of the money give or take a percent right? give or take a couple percent and so every dollar that rolls into the sport what do players know they get half of it and like right now That's not the way this works, and because it's not the way it works and because the percentage that's gone to players keeps declining, what does the union think? The union is so suspicious of anything that the other side proposes. And I I really feel like if we could ever figure out some way to get to a, a greater sense of common purpose, the sport would be so much better off. And you know what? A cap would do that. It's just never going to happen with this leadership.
1: Joined by Hall I of Fame baseball session, writer Jason Stark from the Athletic. Go ahead, Bruce.
3: Yeah, I think a kumbaya, maybe uh, you know, uh, you know, if they all go uh, on a retreat somewhere and uh, <laughs> you know, practice some forms of and uh, good spirit. Yeah, there's, there's, what you've talked about, Jason, and and. David and I have talked about this on our show as many times. There's this more than distrust. There's this hate between owners and players, and the end result has been the poorest marketing of any sport uh, in in uh, in, uh, in the United States for a long period of time, where where owners refuse to market uh, the stars of the game and the game itself. Because they're afraid what it's going to cost them uh, when they sit down and negotiate the next four hundred million dollar contract. But uh, that that aside, I mean, uh, you know, your your thoughts on that as we uh, segue into the Hall of Fame talk?
2: Uh, yeah, there's uh, there's a lot of truth in that, and you know, like once again, I don't, I'm i never grown up dreaming of a salary cap. <laughs> I'm not that guy. But there's so much of what the other sports do that baseball needs to emulate. Why do you think the NBA has taken off the way it has? It's a player-driven, personality-driven sport, period. They built their sport around their stars in every way. And this is is a place baseball has had such a hard time getting to. And, you know, if you want to sell your sport, there's no better way to do it than to sell your stars, promote your stars, Build around your stars. Again, I don't think this system is conducive to that, and it's just—it's just a complication that it takes so much work to overcome. And that'll—that'll that'll be true no matter what happens in these labor talks. Uh, you know, I'm just listening to you talk about they need to go on a retreat. You know, it's like there's there's so much mistrust there that if they agree to go on a retreat one side would show up in hawaii and the other side would show up in palm springs
1: and they would both complain about the weather you know (laughs) right you're right jason one last thing on on this before we move on i think that the 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 conversation about what you can do about teams who aren't trying to win and how you can maybe de-incentivize the draft and in terms of not necessarily rewarding teams that finish last with with high uh, drafting first and these kinds of things conceptually is that even ground that will be covered broached will be any any will they come any closer to an agreement philosophically at the end of this do they have to for this deal to be reached
2: yeah I, since they both made proposals that included draft lottery and they just disagree on the number of teams the union wants 8 teams in the lottery the owners have proposed three teams in the lottery, and they, they disagree about how many years you can pick in the top three of the draft. Um, there's clear agreement that that's one way to address this. I actually wrote a piece um, November or December. I can't remember anymore. I, I basically solved this. Um, if you really want to discourage teams from losing 112 games, it's easy. Instead of awarding the top picks to those teams that lose 110 and 112 and 107, you flip it and you give the top pick to the team that comes the closest to making the playoffs but doesn't get there. And just do the draft order in that, in that reverse order. And trust me, I've done all, I, I worked a whole bunch of different s- simulated drafts using that idea. It would work. I guarantee you this would work way better than a lottery of the top three teams. Um, It'll never happen. Neither side is interested in it. But the reaction that I got to that piece was unbelievable because people read it, thought about it, and thought, voila, it's the answer.
3: Jason Stark of The Athletic, who's been covering baseball since 1979 at the major league level when he was 12 years old, joining <laughs> us for a few more minutes here on Inside the Clubhouse. And Jason, all right, I'm going to reveal one of my picks, and it's and it's idiotic even when I even talk about it. I voted for Alex Rodriguez. I did not vote for Manny Ramirez. There is no sense whatsoever that I can make out of that other than the fact that as soon as Alex Rodriguez walked into uh, Major League Clubhouse, he was a dominant player, and that is the reason I voted for him. But help me out. Uh, Why doesn't the Hall of Fame give a guideline to uh, the BBWAA as to what they think would be the proper way to go about voting for Hall of Famers, I mean, in particular now with the uh, steroids uh, issue that we're uh, dealing with?
2: Bruce, that's a great question. I, I don't I don't quite understand your vote. I'd love to hear your logic sometime. Me <laughs> too. Know, there is none. I, I actually, it, it's funny that you asked this because you, you might actually have been there. This was 2015. Rob Manfred came up to ESPN for one of our February baseball summits. And we had a session with a small group of us and him on the record where I actually asked him that question, give us some advice. How should we deal with the the PED era players? And he actually gave it. (laughs) He said that essentially there are two types of players. One group is players where he used the word proof, where you have a players who tested positive and were disciplined versus another group where this, these are not his words, he said, you're basically just guessing. You think they did something. You suspect they did something. He, he said it's unfair to not vote for players in that second group who you, you're guessing. But players where you have proof, those are different. And Aaron and Manny – it's not that hard to discern which group they would fit in. They're both multi-time offenders, right? So I, I mean, he's—if you follow his advice, it means if they were—they were dumber. Or,
3: they were dumber. They got caught,
2: <laughs> right? <laughs> but they played in an era where they knew they could get caught, where they knew there's there was testing, and if you get caught, there are consequences. I, I think withholding your Hall of Fame vote. Is an obvious consequence. I vote for Bonds. I vote for Clemens. Uh, I have never voted for Sammy, not one time. I've never voted for Manny, not one time. My ballot column hasn't run yet, so I'm not going to say whether I voted for A-Rod, but you could probably (laughs) infer from the way I've answered this question what I think. I, I think that's a really reasonable way to go about this yeah
1: did you well, vote we will for look Piazza? Forward to that co- that column uh, when will that run, Jason, because everybody looks forward to that every year?
2: Well, uh, the, my Hall of Fame ballot column that's going to yeah. be on Friday, But before that, I think we decided it's going to run Tuesday. I did a long column just addressing. All of the "quote unquote" PED guys on the ballot, and how we should think about them. How we—it's uh, clear from the from the voting—we are thinking about them, and how they don't all fit into one bucket. So Tuesday for that one, Friday for the ballot column.
1: Can't wait for those, and thank you so much for joining us this morning uh, on Inside the Clubhouse.
2: Enjoy it, guys. Hope we actually see each other inside the clubhouse sometime.
1: It would be awesome. Take care, Jace. Jason Stark, Hall of Fame baseball writer for the Athletic. Bruce, that a gr- really good conversation. One of the smarter guys that covers the sport, whether he's talking about the Hall of Fame balloting or the impasse between the labor union and, and Major League Baseball. There's a lot of a uh, lot of good stuff there.
3: Yeah, you didn't call him a curmudgeon or anything. I mean, he is 70 years old. I mean, you had the the right to use curmudgeon. Uh, uh, hey, We've got 35 minutes left.
1: I can call you all sorts of names when we come back. And when we do come back, yeah, John Lester might be the best Cub free agent signing ever. Maybe you disagree. Who's the White Sox' best free agent signing ever? Who are the worst signings ever from the Cubs and the White Sox? Let us know. 312-644-6767. Call or text. We're here for you. Bruce Levine, David Hall, Inside the Clubhouse, Chicago Sports Radio, 670 The Score. A little bit of a robust market early that we had some teams reach out, so we it wasn't as stressful as it could have been. But uh, I'm happy to land with the White Sox. Obviously, you look at their lineup, you look at what they bring to the table, and you look at their uh, window of contention, and that's a that's a huge deal to me. So it's you've got an opportunity to, to be part of that playoff group for the next four, five, six years, and that's uh, that's what you want to. Win. You want to you want to win a ring, and that's that's the biggest thing. Welcome back Inside the Clubhouse, Chicago Sports Radio, 670 The score. David Hawkins, Mr. until 11 o'clock. Yeah, that was Liam Hendricks' voice. Boy, is that good to hear. Talking baseball again, boy, we would love to hear that soon as the sides still try to come together to end this lockout. Bruce, we're hearing from Liam Hendricks because he is a free agent signing by the White Sox. And in the context of John Lester's retirement, the conversation has veered toward, all right, He was the best Cubs free agent signing ever, or was he? And then then who was the White Sox' best free agent signing ever? Is Liam Hendricks in the mix? Fun conversation, 312-644-6767. We're getting a lot of texts. What about your calls? Let us know who you think best and worst are. Bruce, I have mine. How would you list yours?
3: I'm going to add a second category to that, David.
1: Oh, no. We only have a half hour, Bruce.
3: I know, but I always, my topics are always about three to four hours and continue (laughs) the next week as well. Okay. I'm going to ask your Chicago White Sox and Chicago Cub combination best and worst free agent signing. Okay. Okay. So for the Chicago White Sox, I'll get you started. For the Chicago White Sox, the best and worst free agent signing that I can ever remember was Albert Bell. Okay, why was he the best? Look at his second year with the Chicago White Sox, and look at the numbers that he put up. All right, they were spectacular, beyond spectacular. Over a hundred extra base hits, a record in doubles, uh, uh, forty-nine home runs. I mean, uh, this is spectacular beyond any expectations of what they might think he would have added to the team. At the same time. He was a train wreck, a clubhouse disaster. I like that category. Uh, Didn't didn't resonate with the fans. Had to be traded after that to the Baltimore Orioles in one of the best trades they ever made just to get rid of him out of the south side of Chicago. And I don't demean him as a player. He was a a fantastic hitter. Uh, I mean, one of the greatest of his time. But, you know, it just shows that you can be the best and the worst free agent signing all at the same time. I would, I would, I would venture to say on the north side, we could use the, the term
1: Jason Hayward. That's the same thing. It's the same idea. Jason Hayward yeah. for eight years, $184 million, was the absolute worst signing the Cubs have ever made. But you could also make your argument with sort of a twisted logic, but I get where you're going with it, Bruce. He was the Twisted best. Because, because it's me. Is that right, my friend? <laughs> hey, your word's not mine. But listen, you can make the argument that Jason Hayward signing him puts you in a position to win the World Series because of his defense, because of his without leadership, question. because of credibility.
3: Yeah, without question. I mean, yeah. it just the uh, the speech alone uh, during the rain delay for the World Series, but, but don't yes. discount the quality individual, the quality teammate. No. The great defender, winning multiple Gold Gloves, the guy that goes out there whether he's good or bad and gives you everything he has. This is a sign of a real professional, a great individual. His foundation here in Chicago, contributing to, uh, uh, you know, the West Side of Chicago and uh, and and doing fantastic things here. This can be the best and the worst. So uh, again, it's one heck of a speaker's fee for for Hayward. Right. So there's my second category, but we want your category out there, and that is who are your best and who are your worst Chicago White Sox and Cubs free agent signees? 312 644 6767. David, take it away.
1: The score listener lines powered by BetQL, BetSmarter, beat the books. Download the BetQL app today. Visit BetQL.com. Before we get to our choices, let's go to Carl in Northfield. Carl,
0: welcome to the score. Hey, guys, how are you? Uh, I would say the best White Sox free agent had to be uh, Carlton Fisk because, uh, you know, I think he, uh, we, he played a lot of years with the White Sox, maybe seven, eight years, longevity, and he was an – How about 13?
3: 13, 13 years. Huh? Yeah. How about 13 okay. years? He,
0: I, I would say Carlton Fisk was the best, and John Lester for the Cubs was their best. Any, right. any nominations you, for the worst? Uh, you know what? I guess there's so many of them. I really can't think at this point, Bruce. But I'm only going to go for the best of the best. But, but Pudge, if it wasn't for Pudge in 1983, I know we had a we had a very good team, strong pitching. But uh, you should ask that to Tony LaRusso in spring training, uh uh, comes what he put what he, uh, Kyle to the Chicago White Sox in 1983. He was an outstanding ball player, but I don't think his teammates liked him that much. I heard a lot of negativity about him as a, being a teammate, but as a player, wonderful. Thanks, Bruce. Thanks, Carl.
1: Great phone call. Bruce, 13 years for the White Sox, as you point out, 11 years for the Red Sox, signed with the Sox, the White Sox, in 1981, back in the day, five years, $2.9 million. Not only that, um,
3: he, that was a, it doesn't sound like a lot of money, but the White Sox were bought by Jerry Reinsdorf and Eddie Einhorn in that group, um, at the same time, just six months before that, for something like 13 million dollars. So put it in perspective of giving a free agent 2.9 million when uh, you've just bought an entire franchise. That's probably worth a billion and a half to $2 billion right now for $13 million. Uh, he he was certainly the best of quality. Um, Carlton Fisk's teammates loved him, but there was, you know, Carlton had a different way that he went about his job. He was a different guy. He was from the East Coast. He had an in-your-face attitude. I love Carlton Fisk. I, I still do because... Uh, I like people with attitudes, even like you, David. You you have even an mine. attitude. mind? Okay, I, thank you, Bruce. I, I, you know who I, else I, was a big Carlton
1: I, Fisk fan? I, I, Deion Sanders. <laughs> yeah,
3: he was. He was that one day uh, for sure? But but in, in reality, you know, Fisk is, uh, you know, it was just he he like Lester. Changed the way that the White Sox looked at themselves and and the way that White Sox fans looked at themselves, you know, because from 1959 to 1983, no appearances in the playoffs. Uh, This was a huge changer for the Chicago White Sox in in saying we want to compete, we want to win.
1: Let's go to Doug, who is in Fairbury. Welcome to the uh, Inside the Clubhouse, Doug. Hey, thanks, guys. Great show. I'll make it quick. I agree with the last caller at fifth.
2: I'm going to show my age because I'm in the 60s. Uh,
0: I'm
2: going to throw two names out there. I don't know if they're a free agency or not. Bo Jackson and
1: and uh, uh, Dick Allen. Hmm. All yeah. right, Bruce. What do you think about those two?
3: Uh, Dick Allen was a trade. Yeah. Um, I, Bo, I think Bo was a free agent signing. Is that not right? I think so. I believe Bo Jackson um, was
1: a free agent signing because he was playing football. And, right?
3: Right. Uh, Bo Jackson, I mean – Great on a lot of different levels, uh, average on some other levels because of the fact that um, he didn't play that long. But just the guts and the attitude of a guy for the first time in the history in sports of sports, playing with a, a new hip, coming back and, and renewing his baseball career. I mean, to me, Bo Jackson is like the most uh, – unbelievable athlete and, and human specimen that I've ever seen in my entire life. And if you watched him play college football or professional football, you saw a guy that, that there were there were, um, there were were 20, 21 other guys out there, and then there was Bo Jackson.
1: Yes, and 16 days after the Royals released him in 1991, he signed with the White Sox. So I guess that technically is a free agent, a three-year deal oh, guaranteeing course, yeah. him 700000 per season with incentives he could have reached up to $8.1 uh, $1 million. Bo Jackson is a good one, even though he didn't play a long time for the White Sox. He was uh, he was spectacular in his brief stay on the south side. And he still remains loyal to the organization, Bruce. I think he's a big fan. And maybe it's partly because, you know, after he was released, he, they gave him a, a landing spot. 312-644-6767.
3: Up until the end of the show, David and I will take your calls. The best and the
1: worst free agent signings for your Chicago teams. I haven't given you mine yet because uh, I, I I think that Carlton Fisk is is an interesting choice and un- understandable for people of a certain age. I think the White Sox' most significant free agent signing was A.J. Pruszynski for the same reasons, for the same reasons. I think when you look at what that meant to winning. And Fisk came in 81 and they won in 83, but they didn't win at all. And I don't want to necessarily quibble between length of time on the south side or or, or whatever, but in this modern baseball, the one year, $2.25 million contract the Sox signed A.J. Pruszynski to when he came to town created a culture and he shook things up. They needed him at the right, he was the right guy at the right time I don't know if they win in 2005 without him. I think A.J. Pruszynski, to me, was the best White Sox signing ever. John Lester for the Cubs. The worst for me, Cubs, Milton Bradley, White Sox, Adam Dunn. Sorry, Adam Ah. Dunn.
3: Uh, Well, I'm probably going with a guy that I really like and have a lot of respect for as the worst White Sox signing, and that would be right-handed pitcher Jamie Navarro. Uh (laughs) A four-year contract where uh, Jamie was always a guy that took the ball, and a lot of times people didn't want him to take the ball because he was a, a guy that came over from the Cubs as a free agent, a 16-game winner with the Cubs, uh, doing great things over there with Fergie Jenkins as his head coach, um, and as his pitching coach came over, and for four years, was not able to be a winner, but took the ball every day and showed up. Uh, you know that was a really bad signing and it was and it left a bad taste in the mouth of the well, the White sox people because if you remember Jerry Reinsdorf is the one that pretty much laid it out there very early uh, in the 80s and later in the in the early 90s with the Jack McDowell situation that the White sox were not going to sign people, to five-, six-, and seven-year contracts that are pitchers because history and uh, medical science showed that they are just not going to show up uh, being able to do that job after a certain amount of time in the big leagues on their 30-plus their, on their years uh, after, after, after pitching at 30, it's downhill from there. So he stuck to that, but he did allow Ron Schuler to sign Jamie Navarro, and they regretted it.
1: OK, that is the uh, worst White Sox or we're signing. How about the Cubs?
3: For the Cubs, uh,
1: I would uh, it's
3: it's kind of a toss up, but I would say, and again, wonderful, wonderful lineage, wonderful guy, horrible player. Todd Hundley of the Chicago Cubs <laughs> was their worst <laughs> free agent signing. Uh, Todd just, I mean, Randy Hundley, one of my favorite people. Todd Hundley, a really good guy. Todd had a lot of challenges, okay? He had personal demons. He had issues uh, that he had to deal with. He was not able to put all his concentration and all his energy in his baseball career when he was here with the, with the Chicago Cubs. If you remember, Todd set a record for catchers hitting 42 home runs for the New York Mets. Um, wonderful catcher, wonderful hitter. But um, you know, again, uh, personally, I, I I still feel for Todd and and the challenges he went through. But it was a horrible signing that just didn't work out.
1: Well, I have to quibble with that a little bit because I think the Cubs had one that was even worse, and and I can remember why uh, firsthand. We also want to hear from Doug. We want to hear from Bob. We want to hear from you. Three one two six forty four sixty seven sixty seven. The best and worst free agent signings for the Cubs and White Sox, going way back. Here on Inside the Clubhouse, Chicago Sports Radio six seventy the score. Welcome back, Inside the Clubhouse, Chicago Sports Radio six seventy the score. Best and worst free agent signings. Bruce Levine, David Haw, here for another segment. Uh, got some good texts. Bruce three hundred nine says Jason Hayward was the worst. Seven hundred eight gives a shout out to Adam Eaton. Seven seven three Ron Bloomberg for people who can remember him back in the day. Bruce and let's uh, let's get out to the phone lines. Doug well, what's in the he famous
3: can- for, David?
1: Ron Bloomberg. Was he the first yeah. uh, designated hitter?
3: Yes. It's a 50-year anniversary. We're going to get him on sometime next week or so.
1: That's a great idea. So was getting to yeah. uh, Doug, who is in – or oh, Bob is in Cicero. I'm sorry, Bob. Welcome to the score. Hello, man. Anyway,
2: speaking of demons, how about the Cubs and Milton Bradley? Yeah. Great I,
1: grade one. Pick, yeah. 2009, $30 okay. million, dollars, Bruce. That was Jim Hendry's worst mistake.
3: Yeah, well, you're both. I'm gonna, I'm gonna trump that with a Fukudome for you. <laughs> <laughs> Do you still have the T-shirt, Bruce. Be honest. You know, he wasn't quite. He wasn't that bad the first year. Uh, remember, he broke out. He had a homer in his first uh, game as a Cub, I believe. Yeah. Uh, opening oh, day, yeah. and it was like, oh, warning track power. You know, the home runs that it, he had Thirty home runs in Japan. That he hit, you know, like. 12 or you know 10 he was just so mediocre it was just a a very very tough one so that that would be on the list too i think
1: okay that's a good that's a long list unfortunately let's go to doug and decatur hey doug
0: hey guys love the show thank you uh, i'm going with the cubs my best signing is andre dawson and my worst is danny jackson
1: oh i like the danny jackson bruce he was a joy to cover wasn't he
3: Yikes. Uh, You know, Jim Fry signed a bunch of guys uh, when you're Danny Jackson, Dave Smith, um, you know, uh, the closer and uh, very few of them worked out. That was in 1990, I believe, after they won the Division 89 with the lowest payroll in baseball, $11 million. And then they, they went out and spent a ton and got nothing out of it.
1: Bruce, fact or fiction that Andre Dawson was handed a blank check to say, or, or uh, basic, or did he hand the Cubs a blank check? How did that he work? He handed
3: it to the Cubs. He gave him. We're going to have. Hopefully, we'll have Andre on next week. Talk Hall of Fame. Okay. He handed Dallas Green a. Uh, he said, "We're we're signing with the Cubs. It's a blank contract. You fill in the amount." Dallas Green couldn't stop smiling until he wrote in five hundred thousand dollars. At that time. Uh, Andre went on to do what? He won the MVP in 1987. That same year, uh, wow. he won. He got $150,000 in bonuses, but wow. you know the average salary for a superstar back then was three million dollars. So yeah, you uh know, you know it was. That's Go ahead, amazing. Dad.
1: No, it, it, he signs yeah. a, a blank check, and Milton Bradley signs a blankety blank check. I mean, that's the kind of thing that uh, <laughs> we talk about the differences in the two, the disparities. Look, I don't want to pick on Adam Dunn, Bruce, but let's get into that for a moment. 2011, he came for big money. I mean, that was a big contract. Ozzie Guillen's last season, four years, $56 million. He, he hits 11 homers, 42 runs batted in. I don't care if he made the all-star team the next year. The expectations were soaring in 2011 when he signed. I will, I will raise you an Adam LaRoche. <laughs>
3: that I <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm gonna, that's pretty good I'm gonna jump on that and raise you in adam LaRoche for many different number different reasons other than the fact that he he decided he didn't want to finish his career with the white sox he walked away from free agent money here uh you know going on to some other ventures in life uh, and uh Bruce, again his Bruce. his his son was still the most honest Oh, his son was still the most important guy that was never signed by the White Sox. Yeah, Drake, uh, the leader yeah. in the clubhouse. And Drake, Bruce, what
1: price can you put on leadership, really?
3: <laughs> it's
1: priceless stuff <laughs> that he provided.
3: David, we have a lot of people to thank today, including Cesar, who did a fantastic job of producing as he always does. You go ahead with the rest.
1: Yeah, that was a lot of fun today. I, I enjoyed talking to Jason Stark. I thought he was really... Uh, insightful and, and the content that he provided from the uh, senior uh, baseball writer for the athletic Jesse Sanchez got us going in the first hour with the news on the uh, international signing period opening today the White Sox get Oscar Colas for two point seven million dollars and thank you to everyone part- for participating in the program especially you Bruce you brought it today I really appreciate that it was a lot of fun
3: People can follow me on uh, MLB Bruce Levine on Twitter and on our website, 670thescore.com, writing Cubs and Sox. When we would start having some baseball again, until that, it's a labor conversation. But we will talk baseball here every Saturday. Looking forward to next Saturday already, David.
1: Me too. And I'm also looking forward to Saturday suckage. Mark Grody, Steve Rosenblum, 11 until 2. Then we got the NFL playoffs. And hey, Bulls on the score tonight. They try to bounce back. From that two back-to-back blowout losses, that pregame here on the score with Chuck and Bill, 645. Thank you for listening. Inside the Clubhouse, Chicago Sports Radio, 6:7 7 the score.